these moments that we share together in your assembly, Lord, that you have purchased with your blood, I pray that you would draw the attention of our hearts and minds, our very souls would be connected to the reality of your redemption spanning across the eons of history, fulfilled in Jesus Christ and moving forward to the eschatological fullness, the realization of all that you have planned coming to fruition in the new heavens and new earth. We thank you, Lord, that this plan, the Lamb slain, was there in your heart and mind and covenant before the foundation of the world, and it remained the touchstone of the faith of your people through the covenants revealing as much all through history. When in the fullness of time Christ was born of a virgin, he entered into this life to fulfill the law perfectly and to die as our substitute. We thank you that he has been raised, having fully and finally satisfied the payment for the debt of our sin, and he ever lives making intercession for us, and we will join him one day when we, in the second resurrection, are joined with our bodies, Lord, and receive the fullness of fellowship that your gospel promises. Lord, as we look to your scriptures, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes and ears of our understanding to appreciate these glories revealed from way back in ancient times all the way through today and beyond. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise God. This morning, it is a great privilege for us to open up the scriptures together and to appreciate the genius and the beauty of what God has recorded there for us. Would you join me in turning to Psalm 78 today? And let us pick up on our fourth message in this great historical psalm in verses 40 through 55. Psalm 78, 40 through 55. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. While you're turning there, I've titled today's message, Divine Historiography. Divine Historiography. There is a way that history is recorded in Scripture that is supernatural and it's sovereign. God has recorded these events all the way back to the Exodus. They're reiterated here in the Psalms for a particular purpose, and we'll explore more of that idea today as this psalm unfolds before us. The aim of this morning's message is to compel awareness and application of the biblical philosophy of history. There is a way that the Bible records history and proclaims history. There is a particular framework for the understanding of time and its unfolding events of history itself. And that is a biblical philosophy of history, you could say. And Psalm 78 uh, showcases as much. And so today I pray that this message would draw our attention to that framework and that it would move us to apply the biblical philosophy of history and our own knowledge, our own understanding, and our own hope and faith for the future. Would you stand with me with your Bible open and let us read the Word of God together? Again, we're in Psalm 78, beginning in verse 40. We'll read through to verse 55. Listen and hear the proclaimed word of Christ. Here we have in this psalm of Asaph, Asaph, verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust, and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail, and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail, and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. Verse 51, he struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety, they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them, 
He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In the first few verses of Psalm 78, we have the following words, and I think it's helpful to remind ourselves of the prologue, if you will, the introduction to this great psalm, which is somewhat lengthy, but there are good reasons for it uh, containing this much information. In this masculine of Asaph in Psalm 78.1, we have these words, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. That phrase, dark sayings from of old, speaks to mysterious truths that may be easily missed or unknown to the people. And of old refers to the ancient things, things that have gone before. Again, divine historiography. A record of history that contains within it mysteries, truth, enlightening phrases, enlightening concepts. Verse 3, things that we have heard and known and that our fathers have told us. So now we see a generational commitment to show forth, to proclaim forth these words that happened in generations past to the coming generation. And this continues to be emphasized in verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, verse 5, and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children. So you see we have an education framework here. We have the record of what God has done, and we have the commandment to share that with the next generation. Verse 6, the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. So now we have this vision for continuity, that the works and the deeds and the glories of God would be proclaimed with each successive generation, that the memory of them would not be lost on the children yet to be born. Verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Here we have a purpose statement. God has ordained that through the teaching, the proclamation, and the transfer of biblical information to the next generation, the children will walk according to the truth, and that God's glory will shine forth, and that His works will not be lost to history. Verse 8, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And there also we have a warning of the consequences of failing to do this. Apostasy, losing the faith, falling into idolatry and rebellion. And so now the question might come to our mind, what kinds of things ought we share? The rest of the psalm is dedicated to the content of this history and this framework for education. Mindful of this prologue of Asaph's psalm in verses 1 through 8, we dig deeper into the history, into this history textbook, if you will, assigned for children of believers. Or you could say even more specifically, this is a history textbook, Psalm 78 and all of Scripture, you could say, is a history textbook that is assigned to the children of the covenant, covenantally faithful. Those who are mindful and obedient to the covenant of God, the promise and the terms of relationship established between him and them realize their responsibility to take the word of God as a history textbook and declare it to their children, to educate them in the works and the glories of the Lord. We have established that Psalm 78, alongside the rest of the scriptures, presents and assumes a particular and a self-conscious and intentional philosophy of history, therefore. Forgive me, this beginning might sound a little academic, but I'll close with an illustration that I think will help us understand. But it's important to get this on record, I think. Asaph understands what the inspired authors of Scripture, with the inspired authors of Scripture, that the study of history presupposes a framework for the discernment of facts. So there is a framework, there is a, um, a set of values, a particular hierarchy of truths, that is assumed in all study of history. And the question is, what is the right one? And my proposal to you today from Asaph himself is that the Scripture gives us the framework for discerning of facts that is necessary to order and prioritize significant events which provide an interpretive grid for the meaning of human experience through time. Why do we study history? Well, we want to track 
the progress of the human experience through time. And the only reason to study history is the presumption that there's some value in that. But what makes one event more important than another? Couldn't you say there are innumerable facts uh, virtually? Couldn't you say there's almost untold number of events that have happened since the beginning of time? Of course, the answer is yes. So the question remains, why do we emphasize 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue versus Columbus's cousin that no one's ever heard of? Well, there are reasons that we do that. But are they correct? The Bible emphasizes reasons to emphasize, to feature, to display certain historical events as priority over others in order to establish the meaning and proclaim the meaning to give something to center our focus, our attention, the providential record of God's history uh, with man upon. And so Psalm 78 is concerned with this. Education, may I submit to you, always entails the selective emphasis of signal facts to the exclusion of others. Anytime we teach something, we're doing so to the exclusion of everything we don't teach. We're emphasizing certain things as important. We're bringing them to the fore. We're proffering them as means to organize and understand the rest, if you will. This is what education is. Therefore, it is important to understand a biblical philosophy for history and education. The question, therefore, in this endeavor, in these disciplines, is which events are definitive moments in the record of human affairs? What has happened in the life course of humanity that is most important? What are the milestones that render meaningful progress measurable? Now, the world has answers to these questions. They're just the wrong ones. What are the milestones that render meaningful progress measurable? The Big Bang, you might hear in secular education, biology today. First, there was nothing, then it exploded. I am uh, fond of saying because it illustrates the absurdity of that supposed hypothetical, absolutely, you know, pulled out of thin air, arbitrary, quote-unquote, milestone in human existence. We cannot observe, nor is it recorded anywhere, that there was something like the, quote-unquote, Big Bang, it's just hypothetical, theoretical physics. It's an idea, a theorem, a postulate. It's, an, it's a notion of where maybe things began. If you follow the study of the origin of the universe, which technically falls under cosmogony, or the study of the universe, which is cosmology, these are fancy words that give a cloak or a cover for self-proclaimed you know, uh, intellectuals to wax eloquent about history. But the, more, but the farther back they reach, and the more they try to explain where we came from, the more outlandish, arbitrary, and completely made up out of whole cloth their ideas become. You might have heard of the multiverse theory. This is another example. Well, perhaps our universe appears orderly because it's just one of innumerable amount of universes that are disorderly. Well, that's just kicking the can of where did we come from down the road of infinite regress. We will never come to any conclusions if we just keep opening up the question of where did we come from to arbitrary, hypothetical conjecture. That's what science in these disciplines has become. And do you know what it is? It's the foolishness of denying what the Bible says. It is the foolishness in the heart of man under the cloak of science, the mask of intellectualism that says there is no God and I can prove it by my discipline. Such is not the case. The fool has said in his heart there is no God and it is the fool who refuses to see the milestones of human significance in the course of history. The Bible points them out in stark and bold tones and colors for us to appreciate and to view. And it is our duty, parents, to recognize these milestones and to set them up in the consciousness of our children as the reference points for meaning in their experience. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I heard uh, one person say it this way this week, in the beginning, time, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens, you have the cosmos, you have the sky, the earth, you have land and matter, you have God, the energy in creating, you have time, energy, mass, and space in the first verse of the Bible. That is a milestone for the human experience that explains where we come from.
And it's only our rebellion, just like the children of Israel in the desert that are recorded in Psalm 78, that is willfully blind to that truth. And this is why the application of Psalm 78 is so important. Again, what are the milestones that render meaningful progress measurable? Let me give you an illustration. Uh, indulge me. A scene from my, one of my favorite movies, The Giver. This uh, movie came out recently. And it postulates a prototype society after some kind of collapse. And it's interesting because the movie asks the question, is uh, a, a tyrannical suppression of human passions worth the cost to your soul? Can we so manage and control the human experience to create a sort of utopia where there's peace on earth? And the movie uh, ultimately answers that, you know, it's not worth it, and which is true. And ultimately, the movie doesn't say this, but it, it does it does follow because there is no peace without the Prince of Peace. There is no way to ultimately get the perfect society without the one who designed humans, human relationships, and can restore us and deal with sin via atonement in the first place. There's a scene in the movie where the steward of the cultural memories of this uh, prototype society passes them on to the next generation. It's quite moving. This elderly gentleman grabs the forearms of this young man <clears throat> and they have this sort of you know, psychic connection, what have you. And there's these uh, scenes that flit across the screen as memories, good and bad, uh, a rush from the uh, older generation represented by the man into the younger generation represented by the young man. And if you're discerning a movie or anything for that matter, those split-second pictures are probably the most important scenes in that entire movie. It tells you the agenda of the creators of the film. And they're the typical ones. It's like the you know, photos on the front of Life magazine. The moon landing, uh, Hiroshima, the dro Nagasaki dropping of the A-bomb, you know, uh, Tiananmen Square, <clears throat> army tanks with the student, you know, standing in front of this representation of communist tyranny. Um, you know, th those classic pictures, the raising of the American flag on the hilltop at Iwo Jima, uh, Martin Luther King delivering his speech, uh, so on and so forth. Well, each one of those things in American culture represents a milestone that we measure our meaningful progress by. And the question remains, are they good ones? Psalm 78 gives us answers. As we take all these ideas into view, remember that Asaph, the author of Psalm 78, is similar to the giver, the steward of divine historiography. He transfers to the submissive reader a catalog of historical moments absolutely and perpetually definitive for the people of God throughout redemptive history. So what ideas, what snapshots of history ought to appear in our mind as significant milestones for the meaning and purpose and progress of mankind? There, uh, let's turn to our text today because uh, Asaph answers this question. Let's do so under this heading, Perspective-Shaping Aspects of Redemptive History. Verses 40 through 43 in our text today are kind of a juxtaposition. There's the revelation of God that is symbolized or that is referenced by four words, power, redemption, signs, and marvels. And then there's the response of unbelief, rebellion, grieving, testing, and provoking. So God's revelation juxtaposed against the response of His people. That's a perspective-shaping aspect of redemptive history that Asaph highlights. Secondly, and these are more the specific moments, that's kind of an idea, a concept at the beginning, perhaps uh, some, like an abstraction, I, I guess you could say. But then we have the concrete events uh, in 44 through 51. And the first category featured are acts of judgment. And the second category featured are acts of shepherding. So verses 40 through 43, revelation and response. Again, perspective shaping aspects of redemptive history. And then 44 through 51, acts of judgment. 52 through 55, acts of shepherding. These are milestones that mark the significance of human events as God has divinely prescribed them. So let us turn again to our text today, verse 40. How often they rebelled, that's a highlightable word, against him in the wilderness. And here's the next one, grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. 
verse 42 and 43, match these four responses of the people to four realities of revelation. They did not remember His power. God had revealed Himself in power. Or the day when He redeemed them from the foe. So power and redemption. 43, two more. When He performed His signs in Egypt. And finally, His marvels in the field of Zoan. So the message from Asaph, this perspective-shaping aspect of redemptive history, is note in so many words the foolishness of rebellion, especially in the face of God's displays of power. When you remember the milestones of recorded sovereign history, of divine historiography where God has revealed His power, and those are seared into your memory and consciousness, you are much less likely to rebel against the Lord who can snuff out the strongest of empires in one sweep of ten plagues. That's the idea. Rebellion in spite of power is foolishness indeed. Consider the attitude of the people in light of the acts of God, and then consider what their attitude should have been. The people often rebelled against Him in the wilderness, but they did this, verse 42, in spite of His power. Why did they rebel? Because they did not remember. The key is remembrance. This morning we sang a song, the last one before transitioning to the message. Remember, Jesus brought you out of Egypt. Remember that He is Lord. Remember that you were once slaves to sin. And Jesus, your Redeemer, the picture of Moses fulfilled, has brought you out of this tyranny and destructive behavior and this place of bondage unto freedom, newness of life, and the promised land of glory. In what sense is it true that Jesus brought us out of Egypt? Well, it's true in the sense that it is a redemptive historical fact and milestone that God brought His people out of Egypt, and it was recorded in Scripture in other words, in divine historiography, God has established this signal event in history for us to understand ourselves and to understand our experience in Christ. The reason that so many chapters are given to the Exodus in Exodus, chapter 7 through 12, for instance, where the plagues and the uh, narratives surrounding these events are recorded, is because it is significant to an understanding of ourselves. Just as the Hebrews were in slavery to a wicked, tyrannical regime under Pharaoh, so we are in slavery to the wicked, tyrannical regime of our own sin. Just as in covenant history, the Israelites were led out by a prophet figure, Moses, who is something of a savior figure, so the Moses to come will appear on the Mount of Transfiguration, accompanied by those who prefigured him, Moses and Elijah, a prophet, and uh, uh, prophets of old declaring, one representing the law, one representing the prophets, declaring that the baton of salvation is passed to the one who is fulfilling their typological, their symbolic roles, and is now about to deliver his people out of bondage unto the promised land of salvation. Jesus Christ recapitulated the experience of the sons of God in the wilderness. He was banished to Egypt with his family for a period of time, and then he was called back out of Egypt, literally, to, the, uh, to Israel, to Canaan, as it were. And the reason was, is because he was fulfilling what was prophesied and prefigured of old. This is why we go over and over the milestones of redemptive history that are recorded in the Scriptures. And we have yet a deliverance, if you will, to look forward to. There is yet a constitution of our experience and reconciliation of our relationship with the Lord still on the horizon. Hebrews speaks to this as the unshakable kingdom, the fullness of Mount Zion, that which yet remains for those who are in Christ that will be fully manifest in the new heavens and new earth, where the pages of Revelation just glow with the glory of that place of fullness that the you know, huge grapes and land flowing of milk and honey represented of old. Do not forget these things. Remember. Why were the people tempted to forget them? Why were they tempted to rebel? 
They rebelled against him in the wilderness. It was the trying providences of God that were the real temptation for them to turn away uh, from trusting him and to lose the faith in the process of God's prescribed journey from Egypt unto the promised land. And so we have a lot to learn from them as well. We're no strangers to trying providences. Our bodies wear out. We have discouraging circumstances. Uh, grief is no stranger to anyone. Death still plagues us in this temporal existence until the resurrection of our bodies that we look forward to. But in this meantime, if we look to His power, it is an antidote against rebellion. Revelation and response. Secondly, grieving and redemption. Grieving the Lord is ridiculous, especially in light of the redemption that God Himself provided. Verse 40, they grieved Him in the desert. In verse 42, we could pair this with the day when He redeemed them from the foe. This idea of grieving the Lord brings to the fore His personal character. There is a relationship that God has with His people that is described in terms that we can fully understand because we are relational creatures. We know what it's like to be let down, to be discouraged, to have promises broken. And when the people were unfaithful in their covenant, when they broke their promises to the Lord, they grieved Him. They moved Him to sorrow. The emphasis on these personal attributes of God, they feature His interaction, or they're featured in His interactions with man. And when He is slighted, when He has been done wrong by His people, then we see that there is a response that reminds us of what should be our relationship with the Lord and how that brokenness needs mending. And this, of course, comes in His redemption. When the Lord redeemed His people, He reestablished their relationship with Him. He restored what was broken. He paid the price for their sin. He bought them back from bondage. And so when the people were mindful of His redemption, they were far less likely to grieve Him. Last week we celebrated communion. And we do so in part because in Exodus 12 it says that the Passover will continue among you forever. And Jesus instituted communion, the Lord's table, as the fulfillment and continuation of Passover as it were. And so when we come and remember at the Lord's table, at the altar as it were, where His broken body and His shed blood are featured in the elements, then we are remembering His redemption. And we are focusing our attention on the price that He paid, the lengths that He went to, and the works and the glories that He featured and accomplished when He bought us back from slavery to sin and established us as His chosen people and set us in relationship with Him according to covenant terms. And so it becomes more along the lines or our response to Him becomes more biblical, more true, and more appropriate when we realize these things and then according to Hebrews we offer Him acceptable worship which is steeped and interlaced with gratitude, with reverence and awe, knowing that our Messiah, High Priest, and Sacrifice has redeemed us and purchased for us in this act an unshakable communion, an unshakable kingdom. Number three, perspective shaping events, redemptive history, this revelation versus response. We have testing paired with signs. It says in verse 41, they tested God again and again. And this, of course, is ridiculous in light of verse 43, when he performed his signs in Egypt. Why would you test a God who has shown himself to be true, legitimate, uh, glorious, powerful, inarguable, transcendent, glorious? Why would you test him? Why would you presume to put him under the microscope? Why would you uh, have all this skepticism and, and submit him to the trial of your own examination in light of him already demonstrating more than enough signs and covenant history of his faithfulness, of his power, of his truth, of his wisdom, of his glory? We talked about this idea of testing in the past in Psalm 78. It is the notion of subjecting Yahweh the covenant-keeping God who is in and of Himself perfect and self-satisfied and true and just and righteous and holy and beautiful and powerful. It's subjecting Him to scrutiny, to trial, to examination, to indictment, to the skeptical magnifying glass 
of self-exalted, self-worshipping, scientific man. I'm going to examine the Lord and see if by my standard He measures up to my expectations for Him. We should not do such a thing. With the fear of God and the revelation of His truth in showing us signs of His great glory ought to move us to do one thing, to bow, to lay ourselves low, to submit, to reject the notion of me being in a place worthy of challenging or questioning Him, and instead say, Lord, have mercy on me, a wretched sinner. And this is the pattern of true realization of the revelation of the Lord among His servants all through history. But when they forget it, they begin to test the Lord, to subject Him to some kind of scrutiny that they have no right to embark upon. I remember witnessing one time outside of a coffee shop to a couple of professed atheists. This is some years ago now. I didn't know a lot, but I knew that God's Word was true, and I stood upon it. And I remember arguing for hours, and toward the end of this heated exchange with an atheist, I asked them, what would God have to do, have to show you by way of sign for you to actually believe in Him? Common question for the skeptic, right? He said, a burning bush. And that really took me back, a burning bush. He said, yes, if God spoke to me out of a burning bush, then yeah, I would believe you was true. And then I began to think about this. God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. Do we not believe Moses' experience? Should we not believe his experience if God had revealed him as such? You think a burning bush is significant, but here we are arguing underneath a starry sky and the scientists only reach into their grab bag of foolishness to explain where it all came from? And the furthest reaches of space that we're possible to explore with current technology only revealed to us even more countless stars, galaxies, and planets, and you know whatever fills the cosmos beyond what we could uh, absolutely conceive of if we had 100,000 lifetimes? I mean, is that not enough of a burning bush for you? He was willfully blind. He was placing demands on the Lord. I will not believe in you until you reveal yourself this way. He was testing God. He was putting him, he was prescribing to the Lord the terms upon which he demanded God reveal himself to him instead of submitting to the obvious revelation that was keeping him alive by breath in his lungs, that was supplying his needs by the bounty of the earth, giving forth fruit to sustain his body and meat for strength for his muscles. I mean, everything you could possibly think of that God has established by way of sign. We block out of our mind, not because it's not sufficient, but because we want to be God. When we reject His signs that are clear and inevitable, as Romans says, we subject the Lord to testing. Fourthly, Revelation versus response, God has revealed Himself in marvels, yet the un- in unbelief we still provoke Him. Verse 41, they've tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. And of course, this is in spite of the fact, in verse 43, he performed his marvels in the fields of Zoan. Zoan, Zoan is a region where the, which is likely was the historical stage for God's great marvels in Egypt, the plagues that visited them and so on, and the unseating of Pharaoh's authority and all of this. We provoke the Lord, we move him, we in, uh, indicting every justified reason to move the just and holy sovereign to defend his honor by prosecuting us. What does it mean to provoke the Lord? To put God into a position such that to defend His honor is to prosecute you, is to prosecute us. If the unbelieving worldview, world, you know, and, and their worldview says God does not exist, if God does exist, then He must hold man's confession of unbelief and rebellion and rejection of Him accountable in order to defend His honor. This is a provoking of the Lord to intervene. Now, God is long-suffering. And He is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from destruction, as Jonah has taught us. But there comes a time, if repentance is not forthcoming, where the justice of God will demand that He indict those who have provoked Him and challenged His honor and opposed His glory. And that day is inescapable. Those who will survive it have surrendered to Him, have repented, have placed their faith in His Messiah, and all others at the final judgment will be destroyed. They will suffer hell eternal 
because they did not pay attention to his marvels. Uh, it's interesting, the term marvel were, uh, is probably more familiar to us in light of comic books and superhero movies. It, it strikes me, uh, you know, sociologists and stuff, people who study psychology and whatnot, including a, a, a guy who's rose to internet fame, popularity, Jordan Peterson, some of you may have heard of him, have asked the question, why are superhero movies so ubiquitous? Why do they keep selling billions and billions of dollars, and why do we keep watching them over and over again? And I appreciated his observation when he said that this represents a people in search of a meta-narrative. What is a meta-narrative? It's a bigger story that gives your story meaning. It's reaching, grasping into the make-believe, he says, his, his uh, thesis is that this fascination with these sort of neo-mythical stories of superheroes is reaching in to the, uh, into the outer reaches of make-believe to find a bigger story that gives us mean, meaning. I think he's right. Why are we doing this as a culture? Why, do we settle, why are we fascinated by these cheap uh, copies of the Incarnation? Uh, uh, not the God-man, but the man-God. A man, but he's kind of sort of God-like that really helps us, and we can put our trust in him because when it seems like all is lost, he can actually fly or shoot lasers out of his eyeballs or do some other stupid stuff and actually rescue us and save us and ensure the future. Uh, just when we thought all is lost, our salvation, invested. why are we fascinated with these kind of stories? May I submit to you, it's because our culture has lost its fascination with the things that compel the attention of Asaph in Psalm 78. We're looking for new milestones to understand the human experience, and we're setting up stupid ones, dumb ones, in the place of the ones that are actually true, actually powerful, are actually true marvels, are actually legitimate signs that happened in history, and that actually have the binding power to give us meaning and purpose and identity because they are God's milestones that tell us who we are, who he is, how to be reconciled with him, who is our savior, and what is the hope for the future. Let's go through a few of these milestones, shall we? Acts of judgment. Perspective-shaping aspects of redemptive history. We've talked about revelation versus response. Now let's go through some specifics as Asaph leads us down this road of discovery, of divine historiography. First of all, he features acts of judgment in verses 44 through 51. Speaking of the Lord, he says, He turned their rivers to blood. That's plague number one. That this milestone in redemptive history, this act of judgment that happened in Egypt, so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies. That's plague number four. You remember the flies that infested Egypt because the Pharaoh refused to listen to the word of God, to submit to the word through his servant Moses, which devoured them. And then frogs, you remember them? Uh, the whole place was crawling with these slimy reptiles and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts. That's plague number eight. The fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail, plague number seven, and their sycamores with frost. Incidentally, vines would uh, indicate the fruit, you know, grapes of the rich people and the higher classes would eat. There were uh, sycamores, was, there was a version of sycamores that would yield uh, fruit that the poor was more readily available, uh, something like a fig that the poor would eat. The idea is that rich and poor alike came under the judgment of God in this hailstorm. Verse 48, he gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. So the very means of supply, the livestock, all were destroyed by God's acts of judgment. Verse 49, he let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. That may be uh, mysterious to us at first glance, but think of anger, wrath, indignation, and distress as envoys or ambassadors. God is sending out these judgments as a messenger, as it were. Uh, divine angels, that's the idea, or destroying angels, that's the idea there. Just as the angel of death was a messenger of God's will and judgment to the people, so this angel, uh, the term angel has a broader meaning. Messenger, one is an envoy. In a sense, you could say in biblical terms, Hebraic terms, that this river of blood was a messenger of God's indignation and wrath bringing a sign, bringing with it a message to the people that he is sovereign over the land. Uh, in the same way, the swarms of flies, each one of those tiny insects was God's ambassador 
God's apostle, if you will, bringing the truth that God is the Lord of the universe, that he can create calamity, and he's bringing his own tiny creatures to absolutely overwhelm you and make you beg and cry for mercy. Same with frogs, agents, angels of the Lord, to bring the message of wrath, indignation, and distress against his people. And so it goes. If we consider these judgments of the Lord, they're actually the referent, the, the Old Testament, or the, uh, the portion in the Pentateuch that is referred to here is Exodus. And there's six chapters dedicated to this narrative. Chapters Exodus 7 through 12. Uh, you can go over that on your own time. I was doing that this week and, and found it such a fruitful study. It's easy to forget so much of the detail that accompanied this, um, this uh, season of plagues that was levied against Egypt by the Lord, these ten plagues that came. Six of these plagues are highlighted in our text today. Well, why are they highlighted, and why is so much of Exodus dedicated to this? Why? It's because it's a milestone that's recorded in history that renders meaningful progress and, uh, and the human experience uh, measurable. It's something that is significant for us to remember. These acts of judgment took place in four categories. The land, you see this with the river turning to blood. Animals, flies, frogs, locusts, livestock. The skies, hail, other, and aside from that darkness, of course, is referred to in the original account. And man himself, he had boils all over his skin and then eventually fruits, the first fruits of their strength, namely the firstborn of everyone whose blood who did not have blood on their doorposts, was taken in this night of great judgment. The next generation is the cost of rebellion against the Lord. So land, animals, the skies, and man, four categories of judgment are featured here. If you turn back to Exodus 7, just to touch on one highlight, one cross-reference, that I think will help us understand the significance, the historical significance of these moments, let's consider the introduction to these plagues. Verse 1, and the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. He goes on to say uh, in verse 4 that these are great acts of judgment. It says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am God when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people from Israel from among them. Later, we see the first contest of powers as the narrative unfolds. In verse 11, Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. So this was... These were the powers that Pharaoh had at his disposal. They were the magicians of Egypt. And you remember Aaron had cast down his staff before Pharaoh, and it had become a serpent. And Pharaoh said, you know, that's nothing. My my, uh, wise men can do that. In verse 12, each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, for the next three plagues, or the first three plagues, the staff is featured. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am God. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile. It shall be turned to blood. The staff of the magicians was able to replicate something of that nature. The magicians did the same, it says in verse 22, by their secret arts. The staff is featured again in the second plague of frogs, verse 5 of the next chapter. The Lord commands Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools. Make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And then the third plague, the gnats come. And Moses has given Aaron instructions again, passing them on from the Lord Aaron stretched out his staff, he struck the dust of the earth, and the dust became gnats and flooded over Egypt. But now we see a shift in this story, verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. 
And notice verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. Now, one very significant detail, the reason I've highlighted these texts, is that in Egyptian culture, you've seen, you know, King Tut or whatever, buried, and what's in his hand? Those kind of iconic pictures with the gold, you know, shroud that covers these mummies. In one hand is like a rod type of thing, the other like a shepherd's staff. The symbol of power and authority and leadership in Egypt was represented by this staff in hand. And so the, the man of power who could control his, or command his physicians and had this staff in hand represented a scepter or a, a, a touchstone of authority and so on. Well, the Lord called his prophets out of the wilderness and gave them a staff. But their staff represented not the mythical authority of Ra or, or, or the uh, materialistic power of this great empire. Their staff represented the finger of God. And when the staff was featured, it won every single time. The staff of Aaron became a serpent and consumed the staff of the magicians. The staff of Aaron waved over the waterways and frogs flooded the land and so on. And eventually the staff isn't featured anymore because it's very clear the magicians have given up. They throw their staffs down, so to speak, in disgust and say, we can do nothing. We are powerless against the very finger of God. And this is what God intended to display by hardening Pharaoh's heart and organizing all these circumstances. His great acts of judgment. These are perspective-shaping aspects of redemptive history. You know, uh, I heard recently somebody commenting on how the pyramids and the architecture and the order of ancient Egyptian civilization commands the attention of archaeologists and historians to such high degree that many postulate these great structures must have been made by aliens. The reason that they think so is they can't imagine man, especially ancient man, being smart enough or have the technology con to construct such a thing. That is to say, we still marvel at the accomplishments of ancient Egypt. But God went in there with a man with a speech impediment and his brother called out of the wilderness in unassuming clothing with no uh, history or people behind him uh, like this great empire and civilization and no great sum of wealth, no record of conquering enemies and said, let my people go. But because he spoke with the authority of God Almighty and because his staff represented the very finger of God, this greatest civilization in some ways in all of human recorded history that is still the marvel of archaeologists today bowed its knee before the Lord. And we are not to forget this. We are to remember that the greatest of civilizations in a matter of just weeks, and it could have been much sooner, the Lord had fun, if you will, displaying his superiority over the pantheon of Egyptian gods. And he drug this out, don't you get the sense? This plague after plague after plague to build one glory upon a glory, another glory. I will show him my wonders. He strung along Pharaoh even by hardening his heart to demonstrate his superiority over absolutely every aspect of Egyptian accomplishment and culture until that day when these famed armies and the superior war force was drowned in the Red Sea and all their chariots became eventually encrusted with barnacles on the bottom of that body of water that was created by God's spoken word that swallowed his own enemies in these acts of great judgment where the land and the animals and the skies and man himself were his servants and bowed before him as he displayed his great wonders. And we are to focus on these. We are to realize their power and significance. We are to mark them as milestones for our children in order to measure the power of God by. We live in a land, in a nation, among a people, in a global society, if you will, that is imposing by many measures. 
we think that our superior technology is absolutely unprecedented and therefore the power and the authority and the influence and the fallout and the consequences of modern life and society is overwhelming. But the reality is, is that there have been circumstances just like ours where God has shown His glory in the past and He will show it again. The very edifice of Babel will be the undoing of the people and a monument to their own folly when the stones begin to crumble because no man can build a monument of his own superiority of God and be success, over God and be successful. So it was with Egypt. So it will be with America if we don't repent. So it will be with this globe, the world system these days if repentance is not forthcoming. The sun god Ra was defeated when the darkness shrouded the light of the day. All of the other pantheon of gods were defeated when the Nile itself, the life-giving source to the land that the people worshipped, was turned into a symbol of death when blood flowed through its uh, tributaries and so on and so forth. These are the acts of judgment that are the milestones of divine historiography. A final category this morning, perspective-shaping aspects of redemptive history. This would be under Acts of Shepherding, verses 52 through 55. There's a shift in the text when we read this word, then. It says, after these great acts of judgment, that is to say, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And so already you see the character of God's nature uh, taking a shift here from the power of his judgments and the fear-inspiring awe of a nation and people and empire reduced to its knees, to the loving tenderness and care of a shepherd who tends to his flock. The Lord led them out like sheep, guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. We won't turn there today, but Exodus 17, 1 through 17, the staff is featured again. Uh, it's no accident by the way it's not just a curious coincidence that in psalm 23 we have this picture of the lord as our shepherd i shall not want later it says his rod and his staff comfort me we sang that song today as well these are the ideas the milestones of redemptive history emphasize emphasize the shepherding role of the lord in the experience of israel go through the, these old testament records and notice how god's rod and staff comforted, guided, corrected, and revealed himself uh, to the people along their way from Egypt to Canaan land. And on that course, you will find moments like Exodus 17, 1 through 17, where the staff in Moses' hand was struck against the rock and water sprang forth at, the, at Meribah, water as supernatural provision, a picture of the living water of Jesus Christ sustaining us. Christ himself identified with this moment in fulfillment when he said that he was living water. And to the woman at the well, he says, if you drink from this water, you will never thirst again. The one who has power to make a spring burst forth out of a piece of granite, the one who has power to do that, is there ever any reason, if you are in his favor, to fear your future? No. He will provide for you in every possible needful way. And so he has through his son, living water. That staff struck the rock, but that staff was also lifted over another area of water. This was the Red Sea. And in this case, the waters became a tool of God's judgment once again, and that's the reference here. He led them safely so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed his enemies. Water then becomes a picture of either a source of life, living water, breaking forth for the people, supplying them what is needful for their livelihood in the wilderness, or water judgment collapsing upon their enemies and drowning them. Now this is the acts of shepherding that we see God protecting and providing. A shepherd uses his rod and staff, yes, to guide, correct, direct his sheep, but he also uses that rod to fend off the enemies. As it were, to jam it down the lion's throat. A shepherd protects, a shepherd provides. During this pilgrimage, he led and guided his people. His shepherding role is seen, as we have remarked time and again, with his presence and the symbolic, tangible proof of his presence, going before his people, cloud by day and fire by night. 
And this glory cloud and this glory fire soon rested upon the tabernacle, representing that God will dwell with His people when they are in His good graces, when the sacrifice for their sin has been provided. And in this way, God's presence with His people guided them unto the truth of substitutionary atonement. Unto the truth of redemption where one would die in the place of another. The people's sins would be atoned for. And they could then enjoy the fullness of fellowship with Him. And this was the guidance and the leading of the Lord in His acts of shepherding through the wilderness unto glory or unto the promised land as it were. There's a destination where they were headed. Of course, uh, represented by the promised land. It says in verse 53 or 54, He brought them to His holy land. It's the place that was sanctified, the place that was set apart, the place that was reserved for Him, the place where the conditions were met for people to dwell with Him in holiness once more. Eden, restored, and surpassed. That's the ultimate picture of God's holy land. To the mountain which His right hand had won. And of course, the picture of Mount Zion is all through. It's another milestone of divine historiography. It's the elevated place where God, where the sacrifices are made, where a temple is constructed, a place of meeting, a touchstone of unity, where heaven meets earth, where the satisfaction for sin has been atoned, and people celebrate, praise, worship, bring their thank offerings, and glorify Him for what He has done. These are the pictures of destination that the uh, promised land represent, and they are milestones of divine historiography. They are perspective-shaping aspects in the course of redemptive history. And finally, there is an identity as a people and a constitution, if you will, that we see in verse 55. He drove out nations before them, he apportioned them for a, apportioned them for a possession, and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 in closing? He drove out nations. He apportioned them for a possession. He settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. The kingdom of God was established in this symbolic form as the people were given a place and they were given ownership to property and they were settled according to their families and tribes in this environment that God had provided We've uh, spoken a lot about the kingdom of God in recent years through our Matthew series. And we uh, sought to, uh, as a helpful way to understand the kingdom of God, I re-emphasized over and over again four categories of kingdoms, sovereign, subjects, realm, and law. Every kingdom has a sovereign, has a ruler, has a king. Every kingdom has a realm, a place where his authority extends. Every kingdom has subjects, those that are under the authority of that sovereign, of that ruler. And every kingdom has a law, righteous dictates, orders, a word, a message, truth, a way that they are commanded to walk in, to maintain in the good graces of that king. And so this is the picture of kingdom come and his will be done even as our Lord prayed on earth as it is in heaven that is unfolding through the course of redemptive history. And we look to its moments of revelatory uh, beauty through the course of man's uh, progress through time. And so we see it in symbolic form in the Old Testament when the promised land begins to be settled with God giving His law to Moses and ordering the people accordingly. And we see it when Christ Himself comes and begins preaching its terms with even more spiritual fulfillment and clarity. And we will see it and realize it even greater in the future, according to Hebrews 12. These were the words of our worship text in part this morning, recalling to your attention Mount Zion that we have to look forward to. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood 
of Abel. Praise the Lord. This is the destination. Hebrews describes our progress even now as something of a pilgrimage, but the constitution is sure. The terms of this kingdom are unshakable. In chapter 12, verse 28, recent text for us, author goes on to say, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Again, these milestones of history, when they are remembered and appreciated and proclaimed, parents to children, one generation to the next, it will inspire, it will be a seedbed from which springing forth into fruitful live, uh, Christian living will come gratefulness, reverence, and awe, acceptable worship in light of these powerful truths. Let us close in prayer that it would be true of us. Oh Lord, we thank you for the promises of Scripture, for the power and greatness and marvels that you've revealed through history. I pray that you would direct our attention to these things. May we remember them, proclaim them, and pass them on to our children, and may they be a great source of encouragement for us. If there are any here, Lord, who cannot fully relate to this message because they have not bowed the knee in submission before you, I pray that you would draw them to repentance and faith in the God of gods and the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is sovereign over all and who has made a way for them to be reconciled to him through the blood, the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the power of your holy word. May we appreciate it more as a consequence of this message and may we walk in its precepts, giving to you grateful and reverent, acceptable, and awe-filled worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.